All right, come on in. Thanks for coming. I'm Corey McLagan. I'm the news editor at the Texas Tribune. And on behalf of the Tribune, I'd like to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this panel, what the publics can learn from the privates, a higher education discussion. We have a great group of panelists today. Um, on my far left is Danny Anderson. He became president of Trinity University uh, just in June. And before that, he was at the University of Kansas, where he served as a faculty member, administrator, and dean. Kansas is also where he received his master's and doctorate in Spanish, but he is a native Texan. Um, his bachelor's degree is from Austin College in Sherman, and he is a specialist in Mexican literature and culture. And next we have President Marjorie Haas from Austin College in Sherman. She served as president since 2009. Previously, she was provost of Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania, and she's a member of the board of the Council of Independent Colleges. Dr. Haas earned her bachelor's degree, master's degree, and PhD in philosophy at the University of <laughs> Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Next, we have David Lebron. He's been president of Rice University since 2004. Before that, he was dean of Columbia Law School. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, who's taught at the UCLA School of Law and the NYU School of Law. President Lebron is a native of Philadelphia. And directly to my left, we have Michael Sorrell, the president of Paul Quinn College <coughs> in Dallas, a historically black school that educates students of all backgrounds. He's also worked as a lawyer, a public affairs consultant, an entrepreneur, and a special assistant to President Bill Clinton. He received his law degree and public policy master's from Duke and his doctorate in education from the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you all for joining us. Um, this event is going to last about an hour, and I'm aware um, that we're the only thing standing between you and the food truck, so we'll get you out on time to, to go to lunch. There's going to be about 15 to 20 minutes at the end for audience questions, and there's a couple mics in the audience, so you'll be able to ask your questions at the end. So I wanted to get started a little bit by talking about um, graduation rates. So. Um, you might think you go to college, you graduate in four years, but that time frame really depends on where you go to college. And here at the University of Texas, um, there's been a lot of talk about how to improve graduation rates. In 2013, UT's four-year graduation rate was 51%, and it was considerably higher at a number of private colleges. So at that same year, it was 79% at Rice, 67% at Austin College, 72% at Trinity. President Haas, what can the public universities learn from the private universities on this issue? Well, seeing some of my public university counterparts in the audience, I want to say that we did not choose this type, particular title. So Correct. We see the learning <laughs> going um, both ways. But I, I do think that um, a piece of it is... A piece of it has to do with how you support students that are there. And I know in the chancellor's conversation this morning, there was conversation about many of the things that I think we do as a matter of course for all our students, providing individualized, faculty-driven and centered advising, making sure that students are appropriately matched with uh, their major. And uh, But another piece of it that I think often doesn't get discussed is the curricular piece of that. We make it a significant point to make sure that our curriculum is constructed in ways 
that students can choose double majors, that a student can change a major if they want to, and still complete our graduation requirements in four years. Mm -hmm. And we are also very willing, again, because we have this kind of flexibility as a smaller private institution, we're able to make flexible changes to course offerings if a student um, is in a bind that would prevent them from, from graduating in four years. Mm -hmm. So that flexibility, the curriculum design, and then the individualized support and encouragement for students, I think all of those three pieces contribute to those strong outcomes. Mm -hmm. And President Anderson, you say that the, the core focus or mission of Trinity is that undergraduate student. And so how can, how can public universities learn from what y'all are doing at Trinity? So, so I think the challenge for a public university is thinking about how can they scale up to serve a larger number of students doing mm -hmm. some of the things that they see working at a small private liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. um, and many times a larger university may be able to do some of those things in their honors program or an honors college. And the challenge is how do you expand and deliver that same level of intense student-centric attention to a much larger number of students. Um, the, the kind of things that um, President Haas was describing, think about curriculum. How do you design certain kinds of projects that may help create that kind of dynamic? How do you set up certain kinds of courses in a student's career? Um, I know that the University of Texas at Austin has been pushing hard on doing many of those things. When I was in my former position at University of Kansas, there's a great network among higher ed institutions where you're, you're sharing some of your successes. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the reference that was made this morning was to the, um, the Gallup-Purdue Index. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, the, the idea that a truly meaningful relationship between a mentor, a faculty member, who excites a student and gets that individual engaged, I think is one of the things that we're all working to find. What are the best ways to achieve to that foster. goal? Mm -hmm. President Lebron Rice is ranked number one in the, the, in the state of Texas in the, in the US News and World Report rankings. Um, what can public universities learn from what you're doing at Rice? Well, that's probably not uh, even our favorite ranking. Our favorite ranking might be the Princeton Review ranking, which uh, ranked us number one in the nation for interaction among students from different uh, socioeconomic, mm -hmm. racial, and ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. and I, th I think it goes a little to your question. I want to resist the question on two fronts. Okay. Uh, one is, uh, I think the obsession with four-year graduation rates is completely misguided. Okay. Uh, I think focusing on six-year graduation rates can make a lot of sense. It will make a lot of sense for some students to take a year off. At Rice, for example, we also have demanding uh, architecture and engineering programs. Uh, our students often complete those in four years, but I don't think that necessarily they should be going in and being told that's the, the goal. So I think we have to be realistic about that. I also think when we talk to pu about publics, they face a very different set of challenges. Mm -hmm. And they're a very widely different array of institutions, some of which have a lot of control over what their student bodies look like, but others don't. What we have is an ability to very much control what our student body looks like. We have mm -hmm. an acceptance rate of about 15%. And so mm -hmm. we get the privilege and advantage of starting up front and saying who is likely to succeed here. Not every college or university, mm -hmm. public or private, has that particular advantage. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I, I think one of the most important things is the, the community of students. For every student, their success, how much they learn, are they happy, uh, are they getting the help they need, does somebody uh, spot when they're in trouble and may need more help? 
that is more likely to come from their fellow students than anyone else. I agree with my colleagues here, the importance of mentors and attentive faculty and all mm -hmm. of those things. So for us, one of the things that really works well is our residential college system. Mm -hmm. But when you have fellow students, when you create what we and others call this culture of care, when people say, you know, here's somebody who's struggling a little bit. And if you look at completion rates, you know, one of the most important aspects in completion rates is the economic pressure that a student feels mm -hmm. under. And, and so we have very generous financial aid, but sometimes you make mistakes about that. Maybe the aid isn't all that it needs to be in order to enable somebody to be successful and reduce the stress on him or her to the appropriate level. So I think for large publics, one of the things they can't just take from us because we're differently scaled, mm -hmm. but one of the things they have to achieve, but will probably achieve in a different way, is how do you create the communities of students on campus that pay attention to each other, that know when their fellow students need help, that help their students seek out the right help they need. Mm -hmm. And President Sorrell, you're doing a number of pretty interesting things at Paul Quinn. Um, one thing that I don't think the University of Texas is going to follow you on is, is tearing up your football field and putting in vegetable gardens, which, which you have done. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but could, could public universities learn from what you're doing with your work-study program? Uh, absolutely. And I want to touch upon a, a point about graduation rates. Sure. It would be a tremendously helpful if we'd measure everyone who came to college, mm -hmm. right? The current system only measures a small segment of the student population that actually goes to college. Mm -hmm. So, for example, four of my last five valedictorians don't count towards our graduation rate because they didn't start at Paul right. Quinn College or mm -hmm. maybe they didn't start as full-time students. So I have significant chunks of our student population that don't fit the traditional metrics, mm -hmm. right? Well, you know what? That traditional metrics is no longer the traditional college student. Mm -hmm. So we have a lag in that. Um, now, in terms of what we're doing, to your point about the economic pressures, um, students who come from economically under-resourced communities face a number of hurdles in graduating. We didn't fully appreciate it until we looked up and realized that we had segments of our students who couldn't afford books they were choosing between sending money home to help pay the rent or to buy food instead of buying their books. It wasn't because they didn't care. Mm -hmm. It's because if you have to make those types of decisions, then you are dealing with a different reality. So we became a work college, and that allowed us to reduce the cost of attendance by $10,000. So to attend Paul Quinn College, all in, it only costs $14,300 a year. Right Of that amount, $5,000 is covered by your work college commitment. Mm -hmm. um, that allows us to give our students four years of a rigorous liberal arts, because we believe in that. I am a product of the liberal arts tradition. Um, four years of a rigorous liberal arts education <coughs> and four years of a real work world experience. Mm -hmm. um, it also allows them to graduate with less than $10,000 of debt. Mm -hmm. Now, we had to do something like this because frankly, we couldn't compete for students against schools with large endowments that could underwrite the cost of going to school. We couldn't do that. We also realized that our students were under 85, 86% of our student body were Pell Grant eligible. Mm -hmm. Now that number, you know, something like 70% of our students have zero expected family contributions. Mm -hmm. That means that there's no one for them to call for any help. 
So when you're dealing with those circumstances, when you're dealing with that reality, you have to put your arms around your students in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And we think the work college system where we get our students off campus into area companies, so giving them a head start on their careers, you know, we also did away with textbooks. We use open source materials. So, mm -hmm. you know, if a professor wants to use textbooks, they have to figure out a way for themselves to purchase it for the students. We just, we, we decided it was time to really take a more um, holistic approach to helping our students succeed. Mm -hmm. And President Haas, you have a number of Pell Grant students on your campus. It's yeah, what, 30%? We do. What yeah. do you do to make sure that students from low-income backgrounds can succeed? It's a, it's a very important question for us. And I think one of the myths about private higher education is that it is a form of education that's only reserved for students from wealthy families. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us up here know that that is not the case on our own campuses. So at Austin College, about 30% of our students are Pell Grant eligible and face the same kinds of challenges that you're talking about for the majority of your students. Um, and it is, it is very humbling when you talk to a family and they look you in the eye and say, we know this kind of education is the best match for our child but there's no way we can afford our piece of it. We spend, as the most significant piece of our budget every year, the money is the money that we spend on financial aid for our students. Mm -hmm. and that's private money. We don't have state subsidies that support uh, that education. So I, of course, as president, and I know my colleagues as well, spend a lot of our time speaking with philanthropists, speaking with former students, speaking with... Um, those who believe in helping students achieve and encouraging them to help us transform private philanthropy into the public good that comes from educating citizens who might not otherwise have that access. So we are focused on a number of pieces as well, making sure that we are affordable, limiting the amount of debt that our students come out of their education with, for us, the four-year piece is important because the expense otherwise grows for students. Making sure that our students have outstanding professional opportunities when they do graduate so that they're, they can pay back their debt. We're very proud to have one of the lowest debt default rates in the country. Our students do borrow, although I was interested to hear uh, from some of the chancellors talking about the levels of debt. It's not very different uh, mm -hmm. from what you would expect at, at our institutions. Um, but our students don't default because they are prepared to succeed. Mm -hmm. So we, we pay attention to that outcome piece as well. Mm -hmm. You do have to remember that the m pictures of college student life that you see in TV commercials or in movies of the entire family packing itself up into its station wagon, driving the student to school, unpacking, handing the child some pocket money, and driving off and being only a phone call away is not a reality for many of the students in Texas. Mm -hmm. And so we do, as a residential institution, need to be a home for many of our students and a welcoming environment for their families. One thing we did um, recently that we felt was a really kind of uh, supportive way of engaging families, uh, particularly first-generation families, we had a, a group of our students volunteer who are bilingual in a number of languages, volunteer to be guides uh, during our freshman move-in day mm -hmm. so that families for whom English is not a first language had a student guide that they could connect with 
who could help them understand a lot of the things that were new for them. And we found that was a really popular program and a great way for our students to see that they can put their language study skills to really good practical mm -hmm. use. So it, it does cost about $48,000 a year to attend Austin College, $53,000 a year to attend Trinity, and $58,000 a year to attend Rice. Um, President Anderson, is, is college too expensive? So, so the, the price that you have there, right. yeah. and just like um, President LeBron was describing and President Haas, that is the cost of what it takes to educate students in part. Right. Um, tuition itself, even at that price, would not cover everything. As private universities, we rely on the investments of generations of people who have helped build our universities. And at the same time, as we work to raise financial support for our students, the price that a student will actually pay um, after all of the scholarship funding we're able to provide is probably going to be much lower than that. Mm -hmm. So we're often looking at what are the levels of need that students have, uh, what are the different ways that they have different levels of merit to compete for scholarship funds. Mm -hmm. And that way we're, we are able to fulfill the wishes of philanthropists who really want to pay it forward by helping future generations leave college prepared and we're helping those students match up with some of those opportunities so that they're not graduating with any kind of excessive debt. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is when you started out talking about the graduation rates, mm -hmm. um, if students are able to leave within four years or closer to four years by attending a private university, they're having far fewer years of exposure to acquiring more debt. And so there's a um, if you think about the trajectory of what happens when you graduate, um, those numbers um, are sort of taken out of context of looking at an overall student experience, how you leave college. We're all working on strategies to ensure that our students do not have excessive debt when they graduate. We know that students who have that kind of rewarding experience and they feel that incredibly supportive environment while mm -hmm. they're there, are also going to be the ones who will help us right. secure a future for other generations who attend. Uh, mm -hmm. Right now at Trinity, more than 90% of our students are receiving support to help make the cost very affordable for them. Mm -hmm. And President Lebron, um, according to the Houston Chronicle, tuition has nearly doubled at Rice during your tenure. Do you think it's going to keep going up? Uh, you know, early sort of during my tenure, Rice made a decision in effect that um, to bring its tuition a little bit closer to some of our peers. Mm -hmm. And then since then, the increase has been comparable to the increase of most of our peers. And part mm -hmm. of that, and I think this is worthwhile in the national debate, is to think about when you have scarce dollars, how do you allocate them? Do you mm -hmm. allocate them to the people who need the dollars or do you allocate them across the board entirely? Mm -hmm. We could certainly hold down the nominal price of our tuition. Uh, the financial model can be somewhat simply described as it costs us about $80,000 per year to produce the education that we produce for our students. Mm -hmm. The price, nominal price right. we charge is about $40,000 a year mm -hmm. just for tuition. The amount we collect on average of that $40,000 is $20,000 right. per year. So the discount rate from the nominal tuition is at Rice is close to 50%. But on average, the students are paying only about a quarter of the cost mm -hmm. of their education. As you've heard from my colleagues, the question is where is the rest of that going to come from? Mm -hmm. What we're seeing at Rice and what we're seeing nationally is that the rate of tuition increase has very substantially slowed. 
So it used to be between 5 and 6% a year, averaging probably about 55 Now what we're mostly seeing across the country among private universities is 35 to 4% a year. But I think people really have to take a very careful look at this, and I wish our political figures and others were more helpful in describing to people what the actual situation is. Because I think, as you've heard before, college is affordable for the vast majority of families, and particularly affordable for the poorest families. I think as you move more into the middle class, there's a greater set of challenges, actually. But it's very important that people do understand it. We have many students who, who don't pay any tuition at all. All of us have many students for whom going to a private university is actually less Cheaper, expensive right. than going to a public mm. university. When you look at the debt crisis for college education, the vast majority of the problems have been in the for-profit sector, mm -hmm. not the not-for-profit sector that we here represent. In our financial aid policies, for example, we cap the loan requirement for our students. That is, before we give them financial aid, we have to decide how much loan they should have to take. Mm -hmm. We cap that requirement $10,000, not per year, over the course of a four-year education. For families who earn less than $80,000, we don't require them to take any debt at all. Mm -hmm. So I think what's really important is that folks kind of get out there and get accurate information so they understand. I think what you're hearing from the folks here is the actual loan burden of our graduates is quite sustainable. And when you compare that to what's sort of the return on investment, that almost every study of college education shows that there's roughly speaking a million dollar return on investment, bearing that additional 2,000 or so a year to pay, to pay for their college education turns out to be very sustainable for our graduates. Rice default rates, for example, run between it depends a lot on the year, but typically run between 1% and 2% one and yeah. two percent, mm -hmm. uh, among our graduates who have taken financial aid. Mm -hmm. So getting an accurate picture of that, I think, is really essential for mm -hmm. families today. Well, and can, so, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Because I actually, you know, this might sound odd as the guy who slashed tuition, but I want to defend my peers from, <laughs> from this standpoint. Um, one, and, and this is also as a person, the three institutions I've attended are three of the most expensive schools in the country. Right. How we allowed this conversation about higher education to become dominated by cost instead of value mm -hmm. is a bit ridiculous to me. Right. I mean, look, the reality of it is I am better served having had my Oberlin undergrad, my Duke degrees and my Penn degree than I would be if I had not. I received extraordinary value from those institutions. Mm -hmm. That is what the conversation should be. Are you getting the value for your investment? Mm -hmm. Right, that, that is the issue right now. Do some schools charge too much money? Absolutely, right, absolutely. But you know what, it's, it's a free market system and you charge what you can, can get. Mm -hmm. Is that right, is that wrong? Not really the question right here, right? Mm -hmm. The question is, are we getting value for the investment? Without question, a Rice degree is valuable. Without question, an Austin College degree is valuable. Without question, a Trinity degree is valuable. I think without question, our degree is valuable, mm -hmm. right? So the challenge becomes, how do we create an environment where we are maximizing the value and the experiences for our students? Mm -hmm. And the last piece of the style add is, it is awfully disingenuous for the people who are driving the cost conversation to be the beneficiaries of some of the most expensive educations yeah. in the country. <laughs> and they are the ones discouraging people from mm -hmm. investing in that way, mm -hmm. right? And, but we don't talk about that. 
and that's wrong, mm -hmm. right? That's I, that's just yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to go off on a tangent, but no, I think it's very wrong. it's very to the point, and I'll I'll be very brief. But I do want to say I think one of the blessings and benefits we have of being in the private education sector is mm -hmm. that question of the value. Right. That is central because the people asking that question, the people that are supporting our students understand the greater good. In the public sector, that question of the value often gets asked as, well, what's in it for me that you become educated? Right. Our constituents understand it's a public good, understand that there is a great deal at stake for me that someone else has access to a rice education, et cetera. And so, our donors who are subsidizing that education for our very talented students have already answered that question in their own minds. A lot of our public debate about education talks and, and is centered around the premise that education is really only about what it does for the individual student. And so it's, the, that it's right. easy to get off that value proposition. Right. So I want to change the topic just a little bit. Um, I want to talk about campus carry. Um, next year at public colleges. We're just all the fun topics. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, we, this year, um, the Texas legislature passed a law that'll go into effect next year, and at public colleges, um, you will be able to, if you have a concealed handgun license, you'll be able to, to carry your gun on campus. Um, private colleges and universities can opt out. President Anderson, are y'all gonna opt out? Yes, we will definitely be in the process of opting out. Before I began, um, the university had gone through several processes based on the conversations underway to establish policies. And now that the law has been passed, we will go through formal steps to have consultations. Um, we will include both sides of the debate to understand everyone wants our campuses to be safe. Mm -hmm. Everyone on both sides of this are trying to think about that. And the question is, how do we bring the wisdom of the community forward to know in our context, what will provide the greatest safety. Is Austin College going to opt out? Um, we are uh, in the uh, consultation process, which the, the new law does require. We are framing this question. Really, for us, the question is, our current policy is no guns on campus. Is there a reason to change that policy? Mm -hmm. And so we're asking ourselves that question. I have been uh, consulting with the various bodies that participate in our shared governance model. And so far, uh, I have not found any of our constituents as a group that believe there's reason to change our policy. One of the best moments for me in this conversation was a student who asked me, as we started to talk about this, could we see the research that the legislature used to make this decision that we would somehow be safer with guns on our campus. Mm -hmm. And we asked some of our representatives, and of course the answer was, well, this was not a research-based decision. Um, so I was very, yes, well, I was very it's pleased to see, uh, yes, I was very <laughs> pleased to see that um, this young woman's liberal arts education had um, encouraged her to, to think about how to make critical decisions uh, based on research. But, um, you know, so for us, the question is not about ideology on our campus, it's a question about safety, in our community and has uh, something occurred or come up that would cause us to rethink our current policy. So our board will be focusing on this at our upcoming board meeting. Okay, is uh, Rice gonna opt out? Uh, so we're in the midst of the process required by the legislation, which is to consult mm -hmm. the various elements. We mm -hmm. had our first faculty conversation 
this past week, and we'll have student conversations, board conversations, and others, and we'll take all that into account and, and make a dec decision around it. I, I want to say one point about the research, because it's a really good point. Um, it's not just that there wasn't research here. It's that basically right. the federal government is now forbidden from supporting research on guns, gun safety. Right. That know. means that we don't, we our, don't our faculty cannot get funding to undertake research on this very question. And really, that's the thing that should be changed. Mm -hmm. People can have a range of views on this, but the idea of depriving universities and colleges of resources on a very important question of public policy to undertake that research, that's something that we ought not tolerate mm -hmm. as a people in this country. Agreed. What's your best guess now on what Rice is going to do? I'm not going to give it a guess. We, you know, we've heard from folks, I actually just heard from one professor who I think started out uh, favoring guns on campus and then, you know, he listened to the debate and sort of thought about the issues. I think one of the concerns we hear about, you know, we, we face a lot of issues on our campuses, and we almost all of us face issues around <coughs> alcohol on our campuses. We're dealing with young people who may be involved in their first romantic relationships, for example, on mm -hmm. campus. And so I think we're, we're all concerned about what does it mean to have guns nearby or, or something like that on our campus. But I think our posture at Rice right now is the posture. I think the legislature, I think, you know, if they were going to move to this, this, this uh, campus carry, it's not unreasonable. I think our position is it's not unreasonable for the legislature to ask us to consult our constituents right. on campus. And so we're, we have no problem doing that. My approach to that is not to tell the constituents on campus, this is how we expect to come out or going right. to come out. We're going to listen to you, as the legislature suggested, and then we're going to make a decision after we've gathered that information. But didn't you say in a letter to the Rice community that you expect Rice to keep its no weapons policy? I don't recall exactly saying that, but, but our, our posture in the conversation, now that the legislation has passed, is we're listening to the campus okay. conversation. We have very good, I think, very good governance on the campus, a very vibrant faculty senate, a very good student association, and we're going to listen to those voices as we move forward. Okay. And President Sorrell, you have an opinion on this matter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? So we are absolutely going to opt out. It's not even, I mean, we weren't, I mean, I want to be very clear about this. Um, I spend a significant amount of my time recruiting students. Mm -hmm. And I go into high schools in the inner cities of this country. Uh, one year in recruiting students in Chicago, there wasn't a single high school that I went into that year. Mm -hmm. and I didn't go into all of them, but we're talking about the Chicago Public School District, where that school had not had a student be killed by gunfire. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're going to make it okay for teenagers who are not fully formed maturity-wise to carry weapons on campus because of the notion that they're constitutionally allowed to do. You know, I hate to beg the obvious, but I am the president of a college that it took an amendment for yeah. our folks to be able to enjoy the freedoms yeah. of everyone else. So I am a lawyer, I am sworn to uphold the Constitution, but I cannot pretend that it was always right. So on this point, on this issue, we feel very strongly that we have to use 
common sense. Mm -hmm. And we're going to employ our common sense and respect the right for others to do whatever they choose they need to do. But I do not ever want to be a college president that has to call a parent mm -hmm. and tell them that their child was shot on campus. Mm -hmm. That we're going to do everything in our power to prevent that from occurring. Got it. Um. So another, another topic that's sort of uh, been in the news a lot lately is sexual assault on college campuses. And colleges have to investigate these allegations, but considering you are not law enforcement agencies, how do, do you feel equipped to be able to undertake these kinds of investigations? Can we start with you, President Haas? I think it's very important to remember that we are not undertaking legal investigations. Mm -hmm. our, our question when we investigate a student incident is not, has a crime occurred? Mm -hmm. Our question is always, have our policies been violated or followed? Mm -hmm. And that's a very important distinction in this whole debate. Mm -hmm. We are not capable of determining whether the legal standard of rape or sexual assault has been made. We are required by law to investigate whether or not our policies have been upheld, and in particular to make sure that we preserve, in this case, um, what is understood by the Title IX legislation, that we make sure that no student is denied access to an educational opportunity based on sex. And we do believe that we can do that. Mm -hmm. There are, of course, many times when we ourselves involve the police to respond to an issue on our campus. There are many times when we encourage a student to involve the police. Mm -hmm. um, we don't, can't control always whether they do or not. Mm -hmm. um, but even when that occurs, it doesn't mean that we are absolved from the responsibility of determining whether or not our own policies have been followed or whether or not a student is in a position of being denied access to an educational opportunity based on sex. So. The idea that we could simply turn all of this over to law enforcement or this new, um, I believe the fraternities have hired a, a lot, some of the national fraternity organizations are lobbying to say that colleges shouldn't intervene unless a court has determined that a law has been violated mm -hmm. um, or perhaps even that police have taken up the case. That's really a non-starter, uh, certainly on my campus because mm -hmm. the issues are just more complicated. I will also say that particularly when we're talking about rape and sexual assault, it has not been my experience that our law enforcement um, opportunity or you know people as well-intentioned as they are have at their disposal the resources to um, investigate the nuances of the ways these laws can be violated. Violent cases of rape that involve the use of um, weapons, yes. Other cases that involve the use of drugs or alcohol to um, coerce a victim into engagement in sexual assault, our, our public system is much less able to engage in. Mm -hmm. The times I have seen students most traumatized have been times when they have, in fact, gone ahead and contacted law enforcement and been told that the kind of uh, assault that occurred to them is not something that the police can or will investigate. Mm -hmm. So. There's just no way that we can give up our responsibilities to do that. We take this extremely seriously on our campus. I want to emphasize as well that while we sometimes talk about these incidents as involving uh, female victims only, that is absolutely not true nationally and even on my own campus where we are a very strong community, the cases we see 
um, uh, uh, involve men as victims, involve same-sex relation uh, uh, interactions sometimes as, as well. So it's a significant problem and one that we have to deal with on campuses. We would love to see law enforcement and the court system do a more uh, comprehensive job of responding to rape and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. But we also have to do our part on our campuses. Okay. And is Trinity uh, equipped to do these kinds of investigations? So I, I agree with all of the comments President Haas is making mm -hmm. about the situation. And at Trinity, we have a very robust set of policies, individuals trained to address all of the issues. Um, and I think the, the point that is really important to make is even when you have a small number of incidents, mm -hmm. the fact that people know about them mm -hmm. has a chilling effect on everyone. Mm -hmm. And so none of us want to or could ever think about backing off. We have to ensure that all students are safe to pursue what it is they came for. Mm -hmm. uh, we are interested in creating that atmosphere where we're, we're dealing with the core of, of promoting creativity, educational opportunities, um, helping young adults achieve their fullest. And anything that happens that makes individuals think that they don't fit or there's something wrong with them or this isn't a safe place, we have to be extremely vigilant about educating our community, uh, training students to be better support members for each other, ensuring that we have the right policies, the right practices in place. And so Trinity is doing everything we can to think about how do we create that atmosphere that will help our students leave being completely successful. Mm -hmm. And how do you navigate this at Rice? You're not a law enforcement agency. So I, I think I only agree with about 85% of what's, okay, uh, okay. With what's <laughs> been uh, said. Uh, uh, this is an ex extremely difficult and complex problem. Mm -hmm. What I agree is it's, it is not possible for us to be completely out of it. We enforce mm -hmm. a lot of rules on our campus. We have a lot of rules to, to assure that students are safe, that they are welcome. I don't think it would be possible to carve out this area and right. say, we're not going to be involved in this area. We have too much of a responsibility to our students, and although Marjorie's right that it involves both men and women, it is overwhelmingly mm -hmm. a problem for women. Absolutely. It is significantly a problem for freshman mm -hmm. women, and, mm -hmm. and we have to kind of focus on where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility is really in two parts. It's mm -hmm. a responsibility about really serious, aggravated behavior with consequences we have to worry about, and it's a problem about sort of environment and culture and making sure that the campus is safe and welcoming and people don't have experiences that make them feel unwelcome mm -hmm. to be on the campus. That said, from my own point of view as a lawyer, I think it's a little disingenuous to say, well, these aren't criminal sanctions, mm -hmm. right? When we adjudicate these things, they have extremely serious consequences mm -hmm. for people. They're extremely serious consequences for the survivors of, of assaults, and we have to take that very seriously. And when we adjudicate that somebody has committed a violation, that has extremely serious consequences for the people that we adjudicate. Mm -hmm. And I think as we move forward in this very difficult area, we have to take both those things into account in designing the best policies mm -hmm. for, for all of our students. Mm -hmm. And that comes to what are the kind of things that factor into that process. What are the principles of American justice? Even though these aren't criminal processes, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that the principles of American justice are irrelevant to how we think about them. Is the principle of a presumption of innocence, for example, one of the principles mm -hmm. that should apply to our adjudication of these 
issues. Mm -hmm. So I think we ought to go into that. I agree, as I said, with mm -hmm. 85 to 90 right. percent of what's been said. But I think as we go into it, we ought to go into it with these are difficult and serious things. Mm -hmm. We can't say, I agree with this completely, we cannot say, let's just push this off on law enforcement. There, I think, as you heard, this involves such a range of behavior. Mm -hmm. Some of it's not subject to law enforcement, but a, a lot of it that's not subject to law enforcement ought to be completely intolerable on our campuses. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we have to address that segment of conduct as mm -hmm. well. And, and it also, you know, we're getting a lot of uh, guidance from various, uh, I mean, there, there's the legal piece, but then there's also the advice we get from the Department of Education. There's uh, other groups and agencies that are giving college presidents and colleges uh, guidelines for how to address these things. Some of them are in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Some of them um, are not widely understood. Some of them people do believe are in conflict with uh, sort of legal standards of justice. So mm -hmm. we're still in a very murky period where a lot of these issues are being sorted mm -hmm. out. I'm going to move on to another topic, but I want to tell the audience that we're getting ready to go to questions in just a couple minutes. So if you have one or you wanna be thinking of one or you wanna get near the microphones, this might be the time. I just wanna to switch the topic real quick and ask you, um, so earlier this year, uh, Sweetbriar College in Virginia announced that it was um, gonna close and then it announced it was not gonna close, but, uh, but it was a very traumatic issue for that community. Did that hit close to home for you? Oh, well, I mean, absolutely, right? <laughs> um, and I will tell you, if we had Sweetbriar's endowment, life would be rosy. <laughs> um, so when I became president, Paul Quinn, eight and a half years ago, we were a year away from closing. Mm -hmm. um, and everything was broken. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you have to do in that circumstance is you've got to look in the mirror and say, one, are we good enough? Right? Is the product we're offering, have we adapted to the shifting marketplace well enough? Mm -hmm. um, then I think once you own that and say there are things we can do better, then you have to decide that you're going to create a new path forward. You cannot fix broken situations by doing the same old thing that was always done. Mm -hmm. All right? So for us, it, it was very liberating in that we were able to create the type of institution that we thought could be nimble, could be more creative, um, could look at things from a slightly contrarian standpoint. I mean, that's how we wound up. I mean, look, the first three or four things we did, one, we created a dress code. We're in business casual wear. Uh, now that we've got a young lady here with her mouth hitting the floor, it's okay. <laughs> right, you're in dress code, okay? You're in dress code. But the, the reality of it is, one, you know, I sat down with the students and said, we need to raise more money and I can't sell you. Mm -hmm. Right in your current fashion sense, I bring donors to campus. They may like what we're talking about, but whether or not they invest in us is whether or not they choose to invest in you. Once it was explained that way, they were like, you know, wear the clothes. Right? <laughs> All right, so what public colleges can learn from privates? You need to dress better, right? Well, I mean, no, no, you're not gonna get me in trouble like that, right? My, my, point, is, my, my point is this, that we are in very serious times for small liberal arts colleges. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, the marketplace has looked at us and begun questioning whether or not our existence is merited. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think, of course, it's merited. I think that the fact that we were even allowed to get to this point is a bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the process of answering those questions, Sweetbriar's process of answering those questions, you cannot be afraid to reimagine 
your institution. Sweetbriar owns an enormous amount of real estate, mm -hmm. right? What is wrong with them looking at it and saying, perhaps a significant portion of our future will come from maximizing the real estate holdings that we have mm -hmm. and creating cities or creating investments that are non-traditional. I think you have to be willing to do non-traditional things to allow your institution to have a chance to move forward. It has worked out very, very well for us. All right, well, I wanna to go to some audience questions. Um, let's start over here, go ahead. I want to, just as long as we're hearing questions and not speeches. Yeah, go thank ahead. you. <laughs> uh, well, my name is Brandon Garcia from the University of Dallas, and thank you all presidents for being here, um, and great questions on the moderator, so they're not fluff questions, so hey. good. Um, President Sorrell, you mentioned uh, the value of a college education, of a liberal arts education. My question would be, uh, do you think that that's valuable for every American, so should every American go to college? My second question would be, what's the value of a liberal arts degree then? Oh, great questions. Thank you. Uh, and I do think University of Dallas is a liberal arts school, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, <laughs> so I hope it's working for you. All right? <laughs> um, so the, the first question is, I do think everyone should go to college. Right? I think there is a college for everyone. And I know that that is not a popular viewpoint in some circles. However, I tend to look at it a little bit differently. What college allows you to do is to improve your circumstances in life. It is an investment. I think the idea that there are people who aren't cut out for college strikes me as a little concerning because I've got a college where a significant number of people were people who someone told didn't deserve to be in college and they are excelling. So I, I don't take those words cavalierly. I think there are places for everyone. Now it may be community college, Right, it may be to learn a trade, but there's an opportunity for you in higher education. All right, now secondly, the value of the liberal arts education is that it is the most flexible and versatile degree path that you could possibly hope for. Right, I mean, when you look at this, one, it teaches you to communicate, which I haven't found a profession yet where your communication skills aren't valuable. Secondly, it gives you the ability to engage in critical analysis. Because whatever you do in your life, you need to have the ability to think critically about a broad range of topics. In the process of doing those two things, it gives you this lifelong affinity for learning, which is going to serve you well. And if anyone questions what you can do with a liberal arts degree, let me give you a very real sense. I was a government major at Oberlin College. This government major has been a corporate securities lawyer. He's been an advisor in the White House. I have tried to buy an NBA basketball team. I was a political consultant. I represented lottery picks, and now I'm a college president. So if, if I had gone to a more you know, reasonable degree path or something majored in something else, I don't think I would have been able to do those things. And by the way, I went to college at 17, and I started out a biology major. Can you imagine how disastrous my life would have been? <laughs> and all the lives I would have ruined as a doctor. <laughs> all right, all right. Good questions. Thank you. Let's go over here and let someone else ask. Good afternoon. So I find this conversation about uh, the benefits of a private university versus a public university can only really hit its stride and become fruitful when you can see the antithesis of it. So with you guys here, if I could request that each of you presidents say one thing that you would find your private university could actually benefit from a public oh, university. Sure. Yeah. Um, I feel like that would help put things in perspective. Yes, good question. Let's turn the title on its head. What can the privates learn from the publics? You want to start, uh, President Lebron? 
You know, it's very, very interesting because I don't quite look at it in that generic way. There are 4,500 to 5,000 institutions of higher education in the United States. You have a kind of pretty good spectrum here on private colleges and universities. The exact same spectrum exists on public universities. And they span, as we've heard, from community colleges, which I think we actually must make more investment in community college. When we talk about expanding college education, the only place that scales up economically for the people of this country is in community colleges. And so if we don't sort of make them more effective, we're not going to make the whole system more productive. So I don't necessarily say, what can I learn from public universities as a generic group? That's too, too wide a group. Now, mm -hmm. if I look at public universities like us, where I think their chancellors and presidents have very, very hard jobs uh, as they try to navigate not only everything we need to navigate, but also the political environment as well, I think we have a lot to, to learn. We have a lot to learn about how they manage scale, how they take sort of large communities. Mm -hmm. I talked to before about the importance of the student-to-student -student and peer experiences. Well, a lot of these public universities are doing a great job of taking a student body of 40,000 students and creating communities within that student body. Now, we don't have that same kind of problem, but we can all learn from that. I, I find that there is no institution that I've encountered yet that I didn't have something to learn from. I just got back from China and uh, Vietnam and visiting universities very different than American universities. But again, I didn't visit one where I didn't have something to, to learn from them. But I don't think it's a generic thing to, to learn from them. There are things they're much better at than we are because they're more practiced. They are much better at figuring out how to navigate state politics and state legislatures and those things. And it's not just learn from them. What I would conclude on is it's partner with them. Yeah. And so one of the things that we're looking at now in a whole bunch of different spheres is how do we partner with universities? We have certain kinds of strengths by being small, for example, but we can't do everything we'd like to do alone. Sometimes our best partner is a public university. So we just got a, a very large grant uh, to look for, for nano-enabled water treatment where we have public universities, I think it's Arizona State and UTEP, who are partnering with us and Yale to have the most comprehensive approach to that problem. We cannot bring to it, to use UTEP as an example, we can't bring the same kind of knowledge to a problem that folks like a university, the University of Texas in El Paso. So it's not just learning in that large scale, it's learning also on particular projects we might undertake. President Anderson, what can Trinity learn from UT or A&M, say? Well, I was going to say, my experience is I just come from 27 years working in University of Kansas, a large public university. Mm -hmm. And so it's very exciting to look at ways that Trinity is wrestling with how do we reorganize study abroad mm -hmm. when I've been looking at in a public university, what are ways that we approach that? And there are many um, sort of infrastructure issues, how you approach, approach developing agreements, uh, how you think about deploying your resources. But the thing that I, I love about Trinity when I arrived, Trinity had already been looking at how do large research universities engage students in research. And Trinity has developed in a small university model um, a lot of that experience around large university research 
Um, and so there are all kinds of ways that there's a, a back and forth dialogue and it is not one way at all. The, the other point I just make is that as universities, uh, the, the comment that President LeBron made in terms of we represent a spectrum, we, we are truly a wide variety. The phrase uh, private sort of hides the incredible diversity mm -hmm. of the things that we do. Uh, Rice University has doctoral programs. Uh, most of us work with very small undergraduate only uh, groups, um, may have a few select master's degree programs. So, you know, we're looking at how do you balance a portfolio and how do you find different models uh, that really help you think effectively about how do you keep everything relevant? How do you serve the students who are coming to you the very best that you can? Thank you. Let's get one more question over here. Hi. Uh, one issue that's been brought up this election cycle is implementing a program that would allow public colleges to have their tuition be essentially free through taxation. Under that environment, what would private colleges be able to offer to the average student? Does anyone want to volunteer and take that one? I, I'll just say that um, no matter what the cost is, you still have the value question. And mm -hmm. so um, if the taxpayers of this country or the state really universally and collectively stepped up to cover the full cost of outstanding higher education for every student that wanted to access it, it's very possible that there wouldn't be a place for private higher education. But even with the proposals that are, talk are being spoken about, I don't see that happening. Moreover, we haven't talked about this, but there are things that a private institution can offer um, that public simply because they are public cannot. That is a certain way of thinking about the relationship between um, values and education, certain opportunities to um, expand into areas that we would not want public institutions uh, expanding into in terms of, say, the faith-based life of their students, et cetera. So there may still be places, even if you could access outstanding free public education, I think there still will be students who would want to choose private in institutions. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. Go ahead over here. Let's see, we can't hear you. Can you make sure Jasmine's mic is on? Hello. Okay, we got we go. you. Okay, go ahead. Hi, my name is Jasmine. I'm a student here at UT. I'm part of a group called Students for Equity and Diversity. Mm -hmm. um, thank you guys for everything. That was a wonderful panel. I just had a question talking about, um, you mentioned how it's more affordable for poor students to get into private universities, often because of grants and um, scholarships and things like that. But how inclusive is the university mm -hmm. environment for those minority um, students who are coming in uh, and are often comparable with students who are in yeah. a very high tax bracket, as you mentioned, especially because the middle class is very hard to get into those um, more expensive universities. And then um, parallel to that question as well, uh, what exactly? We're probably just going to have time for that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, I got to get you to lunch. But it's and so important. President Lebron, yeah. can, can you take that one? And we'll probably just have so time for your... let me tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a really great question. Yeah. And, and I think we're in a period where, I think certainly for Rice, but I think broadly across private higher education, and maybe public as well, we're taking a little more responsibility mm -hmm. for this issue. So I think we've done a great job of building diverse student bodies, and economically diverse, ethnically diverse, racially diverse. But then we really have to focus more on the very question right. that you have asked, Inclusion. is how do we get the, all of our students to be successful 
And how do we define that success? So one of the issues that we're looking at at Rice is not just can we get our students to graduate. Our Pell Grant recipients graduated essentially the same rate that the rest of the student body graduates. But there's another issue, for example, STEM retention, where students come in and say, I want to study biology or I want to study chemistry or physics or engineering, or I want to be a doctor, and can they stay with their ambitions and their dreams? And so what we found at Rice, it's kind of reflected in your question, students come in with not only different knowledge, but different kind of ways of, of studying and succeeding. You may have a student from an inner city school, for example, where the environment wasn't very conducive to going to college, where they succeeded not by sort of building cohorts with their, stu their, their fellow students, but by separating mm -hmm. to some extent from those fellow students. So what do we need to do for that student? We need to find a way to sort of onboard them at Rice and get them to realize that the way to succeed at Rice is by working with their fellow. Uh, students. And so in the last couple of years, we have run a new program, which we call the Rice Emerging Scholars Program. And we were very cautious at the beginning. We didn't want to just do something. We actually wanted to do research while we were doing something. But what we see after two years is this actually does make a difference. It makes a difference in how well those students perform in their introductory classes, and it makes a difference in whether they'll stay with their initial ambitions about what they wanted to do. So I think we all have to accept that responsibility. And let me just add one more little Okay, and then we're gonna have to one go, more go ahead. Piece to that because it goes back to our very first conversation, I think, about the cost of college. Mm -hmm. We have an obligation to make our institutions, uh, in my view, engines of opportunity for our, our country. And that means building diverse student bodies and then enabling the students who come to our institutions and reflecting that diversity to succeed. And, and so that goes, you know, it's not just what's the price we're charging, but our commitment to being part of an overall kind of fairness in our country. And if we don't succeed in that, then we're really not contributing what we need to what I would call the American philosophy and the American dream. Okay, can I, can I, think, I just tell her one thing? Just one, one thing very quickly. This will be short. It is incredibly important that you examine how institutions admit students. Yeah. If you are admitting students through specialty programs, you have already put them in a position where they're going to be singled out in the college yeah. experience. Recruit your students with the same value proposition that would be attractive to everyone. We are up to 20% Hispanic population, and we, and we have the largest Anglo population we've ever had, and we recruit everyone the same way. Force the integration from the moment that the application pool is put together, you will see amazing things happen. Okay, we're gonna have to Thank leave you. it there. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to the Thank panelists. You. And I have just a quick uh, programming note for you all.